we're going to get started because it is exactly 11 o'clock. So thank you for coming this morning. I'm very excited to have you. I'm so thankful to be here in person with you guys, to see you all. How many of you, this is your first in person? I don't know if they did this last night. I was putting my kid to bed. Wow, this is so amazing. Welcome. We're so glad you're here. So my name is Sarah, and I work on the Lancaster team in the, in the Lancaster area with my husband. And yeah, I'm really thrilled to be here with you guys. So today we're going to be talking about woman of God. But first, I would love to just pray and dedicate just the next hour to the Lord. So pray with me, and then we will dive in. Uh, Lord, I just thank you for this beautiful facility, the sunshine today, the, the, the fact that we can be here together, um, the, the small things that we have maybe even taken for granted over the past few years. I just thank you um, that we can be here. Lord, I pray for the next hour um, that you would sustain us. Some of us did not sleep well, Lord. I pray that you would sustain us uh, and soften our hearts, open our hearts, and um, yeah, just, just be at work, Lord. I pray that um, only the things that are from you would be remembered in people's minds and all else would be forgotten. Uh, Lord, I pray this in your name. Amen. All right. Got to start my timer so I keep track. So, I put in your packet in the workshop description, what do a woman wronged, an immigrant widow, a pagan prostitute, and a teen mom have in common? Like, this sounds like the beginning of a bad joke. <laughs> but these are the women that we're studying this weekend. Tamar, Ruth, Rahab, and Mary. What these women have in common is that they were all women of God. Now, what comes to your mind when you hear the phrase woman of God? Like, what is that? It's like a beautiful sweatshirt and somebody's wearing it. I was so excited. I was so hoping. I, want, I asked her before if I could point it out. She said it was fine. So I'm so excited. There's this beautiful sweatshirt on Instagram, this nice aesthetic. Uh, some, is, what, but what does that mean? Maybe you picture a certain type of woman. If you've read the Bible before, maybe you think of something like Proverbs 31. It's a pretty famous woman chapter. Or, or maybe you think of a specific woman that you know, somebody in your life or somebody that you have the chance to observe and you think, ah, that, that's what a woman of God is. But in recent years, even thinking about what it means to be a woman has gotten messy and confusing. And different cultures define gender in vastly different ways. Various tasks or ways of behaving get labeled as masculine or feminine. And we could have a whole workshop on that confusion alone. But that is not what we're going to be talking about here today. Rather, the point of this workshop is to discover principles for living faithfully as women of God. If you've been paying attention so far this weekend you may have noticed that the women we're studying are very different from each other and their stories would not fit on a nice Instagram feed. Their stories are messy. Their stories are real. And what made each of these women remarkable is not that they found strength within themselves to find fit a certain mold but rather that they encountered and were transformed by the grace of Jesus. So how do you become a woman of God? When you boil each of these stories down, you really see a common thread. Women of God know God, trust God, and act for God. 
It's very similar to Shannon's outline. I actually didn't look at her outline before, but you see that she had the same points at the end of hers. Uh, we see women of God know, trust, and act. And you'll notice uh, in your packet that I have these points written in a circular flow chart. And I did that because these are all interconnected and they feed into one another. And we'll, we'll talk about that as we go. But we have to start somewhere. So we're going to start with no. And you can feel free to just take notes around the wheel wherever you want. The type A people are real stressed out right now. But the creative types are excited. So we're going to lean into that. Uh, okay. So let's start with no. Knowledge. We are blessed with a lot of knowledge here in 2022. Thanks to science and textbooks and Google, we know a lot. We know that drinking more water and eating well and exercising are good for our health and our minds. We know that we should not wait until the night before a paper is due to start the paper. Right? We know that? Yeah. Okay. Great, 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 great. Uh, <laughs> and so, but we can know all of these things, these good and beneficial things. We could have a lot of knowledge and still be utterly lost. The most important piece of knowledge you could ever possess is to know God. And the Bible says the way that you know God is through knowing Jesus. And knowing Jesus affects not just your mortal life now, but your immortal life forever. So how do we see the knowledge of God in the women we've been studying this weekend? In each of these women, we're going to talk about a little bit, we see that knowing God and his character made all the difference in their lives. Because they knew God, they knew that there was hope for their lives despite their circumstances. We just came out of a story where the circumstances were difficult. But Tamar knew God's law of provision. He knew, she knew this custom to provide for vulnerable widows. She knew what she had been promised. And so we see that she acted in light of that. We, we, I won't rehash all that because we just got out of there. But we see that, that Tamar knew that God had promised to provide, even though her circumstances weren't bearing it out. One of the women you see most clearly articulate her knowledge of God is Rahab. Now, you haven't heard her story yet. You will tonight. But I'm just going to give you just a very sneak peek appetizer, peek your interest, and make sure you pay attention to the rest of her story tonight. Because Rahab was not one of God's people. Rahab was a pagan she lived among these Canaanites that Shannon referenced, these people so evil that God decided to drive them out of their lands. And, and the things that they were doing, they were practicing child sacrifice and cult prostitution. This, this is a dark, dark community. And Rahab herself was a prostitute. She was a part of this wicked culture. But Rahab knew things about the God of Israel that were about to change her life forever. So if you look at in your packet here, we have uh, Joshua 2. The, the situation, and I won't get, Jenny will get into this more tonight. The situation is that God's people are coming into the promised land, but these other people are already here. And the Lord has said that he is going to drive them out. And so there's these two spies that sneak into the city to see what's going on. And they encounter Rahab, and Rahab actually hides them and, and protects them. And, and she says, she tells them why she does this. You see verse uh, Eight, nine. 
When she comes up to the men, she says, I know, look at her knowledge, I know the Lord has given you this land and that fear has fallen upon us and all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt and to what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were behind the Jordan, to Sihon and to Og, whom you devoted to destruction. So she has knowledge. God is rescuing his people out of slavery in Egypt. And as they're coming, God is also executing judgment on wickedness. And they've heard about this. There's the kind of this line uh, as they're going along the map. And, and this city is next and they've heard about it. And so she knows that God is powerful. She also knows God's sovereignty and judgment. Keep reading, verse 11. As soon as we heard it, our hearts melted and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God of the heavens above and on the earth beneath. So she recognizes this God, he is God. The Canaanites had a lot of gods, but she recognizes this one actually is God and he is sovereign and he is the judge. I also think from this verse, you can see that Rahab knows that she's a sinner. Why else would their hearts melt? If you have nothing to fear, why, why would this bother you? But they recognize what we have been doing is wrong. There is part of her that knows what has been going on is evil. So she recognizes this is God. He is powerful and he is judging and he has the right to do that because we are wrong. But Rahab knows more than just God's power and judgment. She also knows God's mercy. Look at verse 12. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house. And give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and mother, brothers and sisters, all who belong with me. Deliver our lives from death. Rahab lived in one of the most powerful cities of the ancient world. It was incredibly well defended. It had never been captured. It had a giant wall that was unlike anything else in the ancient world and arguably still today. And the attitude of this city was pride and arrogance. They were proud of their city. And they said, you will never capture us. Who are you, you former slaves? You will never come over this wall. And yet, in this city of prideful arrogance, Rahab knows God. And this is so interesting because Rahab, her name, literally means the proud one. But in this city of prideful arrogance, she is the only one who knows truly what is about to happen and has the bold humility to appeal to God's mercy, even though she knows the punishment would be justified. Her knowledge leads her to this bold humility. And I won't tell you everything now, but God does forgive her. And not just her, but anyone else who would listen to her. Do you see how the right knowledge of God changes everything? Not just for her, but for her family and her immediate community. The only people that survived the fall of this city were those who listened to her and asked God for mercy. As we talk about these women this weekend, I want you to see that each of them face incredible challenges and difficult situations. Their stories are full of sin, their own, and the sins of others. 
Most of them are stuck up against political and cultural systems in which they have little control. But they were not hopeless because they knew of one more powerful than themselves. There was one who could rescue them from the messes of others and the messes of their own making. And so they were not hopeless. And knowing Jesus and making him known is your most important purpose in life. And some of you, you're Christians and you know this. But some of you here might not be Christians yet or may not know what you think about Jesus. And I just want to to appeal to you. You have a deep longing inside to know. Have you ever asked yourself, is there anything more in this life? Is this really all there is? Something is not quite right. The Lord has placed that longing to know in you. And that longing is satisfied in Christ. And so this is a simple question. But I want to ask, do you know Jesus? I I don't want to glance over that. I want you to take a minute, and I'm going to keep it on my watch to make sure we actually have time to sit and think about it. But... Can you write down clearly in one sentence who Jesus is and what he has done for you? You're not going to share it, so you just write it down for yourself. But just take one minute. Do you know Jesus? Who is he? So for some of you, maybe you were able to write an answer down very quickly. But we know that we have our whole lives to know Jesus more and delight him. That's our purpose in this life. So how could you know him more? Are there one to two women in your life that could help you know Jesus better? And even if you were writing and you were realizing, I actually don't, I don't know if I could put this in a sentence. Is, are there people that could help you know Jesus better? Who could maybe read the Bible with you? Or talk about what you're learning in church? Is there a Bible study that you could start going to on your campus or at the church you've been visiting so you can learn more? I want you to write down, no matter where you're at, write down one next step that you can take to know Jesus more. Likewise, are you inviting others to know Jesus? Because we see that Rahab's actions, you'll see tonight, impacted not just her, but people around her. Just like Rahab, each of you has a sphere of influence. People in your life that you impact every day. Friends classmates, family, younger students, people at church or the gym or your sports team or the choir. You all have people that you interact with in some way. Many of you maybe came this weekend because you know that women teaching other women about Jesus is a powerful experience. And I want to invite you to be part of what we're doing here. You can read the Bible with someone. I don't think Rahab went to any Bible studies. I don't think there were any churches in her city at the time. But she knew of the Lord, and so she told other people what she knew. You can read the Bible with others. There is always someone who knows more than you, and always someone who knows less. So join in the stream of women that we're learning who have come before us and who will come after us uh, to realize that we can know God and we can help others know God. So I also want you to write down one next step that you can take to help others know Jesus more. So women of God know Jesus, but knowledge alone doesn't change how we live. You see, because I can have knowledge, 
and I've been there, done this. I can have knowledge that binge watching Netflix in my bed in the dark all day will plunge me into depression every time. But unless I trust that setting screen time limits, getting out of bed and engaging with the people around me really is better for me, then nothing is going to change. Unless I really believe that that's true, nothing's going to change. But when you truly know who Jesus is, then you trust him. So moving, we see how knowledge blend, moves into truth. Trust is hard, especially if we have past knowledge and experience of betrayal. Then it's really hard. But I, it's so interesting. The English word truth is based on the notion of trust. So trust happens when we know something is true. Trust happens when we choose to believe and that what we know is true. So let's talk about Ruth in regards to trust. Now Ruth is the subject of the quiet times here this weekend, so you may have read the first part of her story this morning. Uh, and if you didn't get to it yet, I would really encourage you to go back and read it later because Ruth is a, a really amazing book. But I will warn you, it's tempting to read Ruth like a Disney movie. <laughs> because in a Disney movie, many times it starts out and there is a, a loss pretty early on established that sets up the heroine on her journey that will ultimately lead her to her happy ending. And it's really easy to read Ruth like that. Because you would open it up, and maybe this morning you read that kind of first chapter where there's this woman from Moab who marries an Israelite man, but then he dies. And she goes on a journey with her mother-in-law. And I'm spoiling this a little bit. Uh, and she comes back and there is ultimately a happy ending. And someone who is often cast as Prince Charming. But if you read Ruth that way, it's actually a mistake. And it's a mistake because Ruth living her life, just like you living yours, had no idea how her story would end. So I want to go back to Ruth 1 and really slow down in that really beginning and notice some things. So should, again, if you got a chance to read it this morning, this will be familiar. If not, go back later. So we, we noticed in our quiet times this morning that Ruth is a Moabite which that is a country that was historically the enemy of God, and they worshiped other gods. She marries an Israelite who then dies, along with his father and brother. Her mother-in-law, now a poor widow, wants to go back home to Israel because as we've remembered, as we've even learned from Tamar, being a widow is really vulnerable in this time. There are not options for careers or other security. Really, your only options are to go back to your family or get married again. That's really it, and it's really, really important. Uh, and so Naomi, her mother-in-law, wants to go home, which makes sense. But here's what I really want you to know. Ruth did not have to go with her, and Naomi even tried to talk her out of it. You see, in verse 8, she says, Go, return each of you to your mother's house. And she's saying, May the Lord deal kindly with you. And, and even if you skip to verse 11, her reasoning for sending them back is, I won't have any more sons. 
you know, this, this is different. It's not, there's not a Shayla in the wings somewhere waiting. You know, she's saying, there's no one else for you to get married to here. Um, I don't have any security. I don't have any security myself. I can't provide for you either. And we do see that the other Orpah, her sister-in-law, does go back. And so Naomi is trying to talk her out of this because Ruth has a choice at the end of chapter one to stay in her hometown and get remarried, but to someone who isn't following God, or to leave with Naomi. And when she chooses to leave, she knowingly and purposefully puts herself in the position of being a poor immigrant widow. Now, even in our day, that is a tough spot to be in. In her day, this is, this is like the trifecta of vulnerability. This is a hard situation. She left home knowing that it was unlikely that she would get remarried because Naomi doesn't have any more sons. And Israelites hated Moabites. And so she is up against this ethnic and religious bias, even though she chooses to follow the Lord. You see throughout the book, people refer to her as the Moabite, the Moabite. So it's really unlikely that anyone would marry her. But we see that Ruth left Moab knowing that this choice would likely mean that she could stay in this situation forever. But she trusted God so much that she deemed he was worth leaving everything else behind. You see, she says, your people, where does she say that? I didn't, I didn't underline that one. Um, 17, 16, your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Trust is doing what, it, what you know to be right and true, even if the circumstances don't bear that out. Trust is doing what you know to be right and true, even if. The circumstances don't bear it out. Trust takes courage. Living for God is not the safe or self-serving bet. Because Ruth could have trusted in the material comforts of Moab. She left her familiar culture. She left her family. She left a place where she was an insider to become an outsider. And this choice is huge because this is another moment where the bloodline of Jesus's genealogy could have ended right then and there. Ruth lived in a time when very few people, even in Israel, were actually following and trusting God. But because of her trust and through her trust, the Lord brought her into a marriage where she did have a son to carry on the line. And so trust happens when we know that something is true. But how can we trust anything in our day? I mean, video editing skills are insane. You can't really necessarily trust what's online or videos. There's propaganda, there's censorship. I mean, e even the phrase, my truth. Can there be anything objectively true and trustworthy? Yes, there is. The Bible is the word of God, and its message has remained unchanged for thousands of years. 
And if that's something in particular you want to know more about, please talk to me later for can we actually trust the Bible? I would love to talk about that. We don't have time right now, but I would love to. Because we see that God's word and his promises have come true time and time again. The Bible gives us a track record of trustworthiness in Jesus. A track record of trustworthiness. We take this for granted because to us, this is just all old. (laughs) But actually, these women lived centuries apart from one another in different regions, in different cultures. But the God they met is always the same. You know, you just sang a song in your closing session, You Are the Same God, and you sang it like 50 times. And some of you might have been like, how many times are we repeating this? Oh, we're still going. Okay, all right. The reason we're repeating it is because he is the same. He has never changed. So his promises never change. He said that he would bring a savior through the bloodline of the first woman, and that is exactly what he is doing. So in the world of viral videos and fading trends, the Bible stands out as completely different because it is unchanged and it has stood the test of time. He is who he says he is. And we see that knowledge and truth feeds and bolsters our trust. When we know more, we trust more. We choose to trust, he holds it up. Now we know he's trustworthy. It goes into each other, it keeps going. So I want to ask you and and have a a question where you can really sit and reflect. Is there any situation in your life where you have had to trust God in spite of your circumstances? Like Ruth. Just think about it for a minute. And a second question to think about, as you have learned what it looked like to trust God in that situation, how could you teach others to trust God? Friends? other students, people that you interact with, how could you teach others to trust God? So we've talked about how knowing and trusting work together. But when we know and trust something, action naturally follows. I doubt at the time these women thought they would be remembered centuries later. They're just living their lives. But their actions have reverberated for centuries. We still know their names. And when you know and trust, action naturally follows. And and I love, I think Mary illustrates this so beautifully. So Mary is living her life. She's a teenager, doing her thing. And an angel shows up one day. Wild. And he gives her this knowledge. You are going to bear a son. And she's like, what? Like, how will this happen? I'm a virgin. Uh, And he explains to her, he talks to her, and this is the very next verse. This is from Luke's account. Verse 39, the angel has just said, you're going to bear a son. Also, your cousin Elizabeth, who is well known to have infertility issues, she is going to have a child also. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country, to the town of Judah. She entered the house of Zechariah and Elizabeth. It's almost like she can't help herself. She's told this is going to happen. So she's like, okay, I'm going to go see. And it did happen. She finds her cousin, and her cousin indeed is pregnant. And it's important to notice that Mary's knowledge wasn't perfect. She even asked the angel, like, I don't really understand how this is going to work. Her knowledge wasn't perfect. 
Because sometimes we can think, well, I need to know it perfectly before I trust, before I do something. I got to know everything. I have to know all the Bible answers. None of these women did that. Like I mentioned, Rahab probably never went to a Bible study. Mary is part of the people of God, but also doesn't fully understand. And that doesn't stop them from acting and following. So one of the, one of the kind of easy traps to fall into when you're reading these women's stories in the Bible, or really any narrative stories in the Bible, is to think that they're prescriptive, that they're telling you what to do. Now, like when a doctor gives you a prescription, he says, take this twice a day for 10 days till it's gone. That's prescriptive, telling you what to do. These passages are not like that. They are descriptive. They're just describing what happened. So you're not necessarily meant to read them and think, well, how do I act like Rahab? Or how do I act like Ruth? Because you could get into really weird territory very fast. You know, you could think, well, so am I allowed to lie like Rahab? We'll get there. Or if I be like Ruth, can I go sneak up on the quad on a guy with my blanket and then just he like have to be my boyfriend? Some of you who haven't read it yet are like, what is she talking about? You'll get there. Yeah. But no, so you, you, don't, you don't do that. <laughs> so walking away from the conference thinking you need to act like them is not necessarily what it's getting at. Rather than prescribing five steps to be a woman of God, these texts are describing the experiences of women living in a broken world, being redeemed by Jesus. You're not necessarily supposed to see them as the hero, but you see Jesus as the hero rescuing them. Because what do we find in their stories? Not necessarily superwoman. We find utterly human woman. Vulnerable, smart, broken, sinned against, sinners themselves, not perfect but regular women who chose to know God, to trust him, and to act accordingly. And you do see that they didn't always act perfectly. Each of their stories does have some level of mess and even ambiguity. But again, their stories are not primarily about them. Their stories are about the God who rescued them, who saved them out of deadly danger, and who saved them from themselves. And this is really helpful to think about. Because what do we find when we look at our own stories? Utterly human women. Vulnerable, smart, broken, sinned against, sinners ourselves. Not perfect, but regular women who have a certain degree of mess and ambiguity in each of our own stories. But our stories aren't primarily about us either. If you are a follower of Jesus, then your story is about a God who rescued and who is rescuing you from deadly danger and messes of your own making. (laughs) Something so interesting about each of these five women is with the exception of Bathsheba, who is described as physically beautiful, we do not have a single physical description of these women. We have no idea what they looked like or how they talked or how they presented themselves, but what do we know? Tamar was declared more righteous than Judah. 
Rahab feared God and dealt kindly with his people. Ruth honored her mother-in-law and left everything behind to follow God. Mary exalted and worshiped God even after she told she would miraculously conceive a baby. These are actions. They were women of God because they knew God. They trusted him despite his circumstances. And they acted to the best of their ability in accordance with the God they knew and trusted. So being a woman of God is not about what you look like or any outside adornment. God made you a woman. And if you know Jesus as your Savior, then he has also made you a woman of God. So being a woman of God is not something you strive to become. It's something that you are. It's not something you become. It's something that you are. So what if we spent less time trying to be a perfect woman, whatever that means in our head, and more time just being? What if we cared less about our image and more about imaging Christ? If we cared less about our own image and more about imaging, reflecting, making Christ known? If we did that, then... We would be free to be women who could acknowledge our weaknesses without feeling defensive. Who could repent of our sins and embrace Christ's sacrifice for us. And who could choose every day in ordinary situations to make Jesus known through our words and actions. So friend, if you are a Christian... The things that God calls you to do, you do as a woman on the basis of what you know about Jesus and trust to be true. And it doesn't necessarily matter what those things are. Things are not necessarily gendered in themselves. And this is important to realize because for a long time I struggled with my womanhood because I felt confused over my interests because there's a lot of things I like that are seen as feminine, perhaps even hyper-feminine. I like to sew my own clothes and do crafts. I have a little garden. I love it. But, that's all right, that's fine, that's fine. But I also grew up working for my mechanic dad and I grew up hunting with him. And I felt really stressed out about this because he had always wanted a son and he ended up with two daughters and it was hard for him. And so I always grew up feeling very confused. Is it wrong for me to like the feminine things? Is it okay if I like these things? Well, should I like these things less and should I pursue these things? And this, it might sound trivial, but actually a lot of my life, the background soundtrack was wrestling with this and like, what am I? Is it okay to, you know, what, what do I do with this? But I was so set free when I learned that things are not womanly. I am a woman that God made. And so I am just as womanly changing a tire, which we did one time on the way back from women's conference, as I am sewing a dress. Whatever you're doing is womanly because you're a woman doing it. And you can be at peace with that. 
whatever you're doing is womanly because you're a woman doing it. So you will see that women of God will CEO companies and birth babies and become lawyers and sew dresses and work landscaping jobs. Whatever the Lord has called you to do, you do the things. So what you do does not make you womanly, but God in his perfect design has made you a woman. And so whatever you do for God, you do as a woman of God. And this world desperately needs women of God, women who are at peace with who they are, with all of our paradoxical strengths and vulnerabilities. Because you're growing up in a time when we're more aware than ever at any given moment of what is going on in the world all around us. And that is both helpful and intense pressure. And so some of us feel a desire and a pressure to be someone who changes the world. And that, that's a good thing, but we feel an intense pressure to stand out, to do something extraordinary. Or others of us, that very pressure really freaks us out and we want to hide and we don't want to stand out and we don't want to make waves. Because how can one person change the world? Our headlines are dismal and frightening. What can one woman do? But each of these women also were stuck in political and cultural systems beyond their control. And yet their ordinary everyday actions for Christ literally changed, like, had impacts on the future of the world as it carried out and to bring us here to today. And so it, it is worth noting that God did make women and he did make them different from men. And there are things that women can do often. It'll look different in each person and culture to culture. But there are things that women can do that men often, not always, but often have a harder time doing. And so one of the, one of the real gifts that you see that God has given women is the ability to uplift and change communities. Like, you just see this. So I was a history major in college, and I, we were in classes studying uh, various political movements throughout the whole 20th century, social movements, cultural movements, decolonization movements. This professor was not a Christian, in fact, was somewhat anti-Christian. But I do remember him once making a statement you want your movement to succeed, you need to convince women to get involved. And he had a twofold point. He was saying that if you look at all these movements, decolonization movements, civil rights movements, voting rights movements, any, anything you look at, you see that women literally carry culture by carrying life, bringing children, and women also can carry culture through the community. And you can see that in all these different women's stories. It's so interesting. The secular world, to some degree, does realize this, that, that these women that we've been studying, when given the knowledge of God and trusting God as they acted for God, they impacted not just themselves, but their communities all around them. Now, I'm not saying that men cannot be involved in these things. That is foolish and untrue. But there is something glorious about a woman on a mission. And that is a gift from God. So how are you using it? Your ordinary everyday actions matter. How you treat your roommate 
matters. How you treat your parents matters. Whether or not you're going to cut corners and cheat on that test matters. How you act in your dating relationships matters. So what are you doing? Are your actions explicitly making Jesus known? I want you to just sit there and think about that. Can you think of any time when you had to do something out of a conviction of following the Lord? Why don't you think about it? Take a minute. Write it down. So are your actions explicitly making Jesus known? I'm going to give you some ideas of what that could look like. We've alluded to it already, but I want to talk about it again. You can lead women's Bible studies that actually study the Bible. Like, you can do it. I'm pretty sure all of these women were illiterate, and also the Bible wasn't done yet. But you have something that they did not have. You have this. Don't take it for granted in your language that you can read. You have a precious gift that you can use. We've seen that Jesus has already worked through the most unlikely and perhaps least qualified women in this weekend. So center your women's ministry around Jesus and around his word. And actually talk about scripture when you're meeting up with your friends or younger students. Because the things you do by the grace of Jesus will have, for the grace of Jesus, will have impacts that last into eternity. There are a lot of things that you are working very hard for that won't last. Your major, your job, your career, it won't last. It's not a bad thing. It's a good thing. You should pursue it. But it's not an eternal thing. Your appearance, your hobbies, things will change. Things will fade away. But here and now, you can be part of something bigger than yourself. Faithful women of God have been impacting this world for centuries through their everyday actions of faith based on their knowledge and trust of Jesus. And it's my hope that you leave this weekend not merely admiring the women of the Bible. It's my hope that you see how through time and space, the faithful, faithful God has come again and again to meet his people, to reveal himself to his people, that he is reversing the curse of sin, and that one day we will see this world made new for in Christ. We'll get to see that. And to know, wow, look, there's the girls from my Bible study. Here we are. We're together. We're worshiping before the Lord. What a glorious day that will be. And you can be part of that. And I I want to even make a note that if you are not a Christian yet, then you will feel sometimes, are my actions in vain? What am I doing? What am I pursuing? I don't know. This is the purpose that you're looking for and that you're seeking. Because you were made to know God, to trust him, and to make him known through words and actions. 
This is what you were made for. You've been placed here as a woman. You are not an accident or a mistake. God has placed you here as a woman for a purpose. And as we consider the stories of the faithful women who've come before us, let us persist and endure in whatever life brings us, looking to Jesus, the one who has rescued and is rescuing us. We do this not only for our own sake, but also for those around us, so that our communities may see Christ and worship him and know him. So we're going to close with a few reflection questions and then have a little time of, of small groups. What are some areas where you could take risky actions of faith to act for God? Sometimes we have a sense. I feel like maybe God is calling me to do this thing, but I don't know if I can trust him. What is that area? Write that down. Pray about that. What are some areas that you could take steps of faith to act for Jesus? For our remaining 10 minutes, I would love to get really practical. So I would love for you to take a few minutes to get into small groups. If you're here with people from your campus, maybe get in a small group with those people from your campus. And if you're not, just jump in with any group. It really doesn't matter. But I would love for you to take a few minutes to brainstorm specific actions or specific um, ways when you go home to your campus that you can help each other know God, trust God, and act for God. So I would love for it just to get very practical and, and leave with, what are some, some things that we can do as we go back to our campuses to, to live as women of God? So break up and talk about that for about 10 minutes, and then I'll call everybody back when we're done. All right, ladies, so I am going to, sorry, did I scare you? Sorry. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to wrap everything up. So thank you so much for spending this hour with me. You don't have to end your conversations now, but we do have lunch in two, one minute, so you're probably going to want to, and lunch is with your small groups. So hopefully your small group leader told you where to meet. I'm just realizing I did not tell mine, so.